0: Okay, so we are, Lord willing, going to finish our consideration of this greeting from the throne room of God tonight. So if you haven't already, you can open up to Revelation chapter 1. That's where we're primarily going to be. Now, the part of the greeting that we are focusing on this evening, if you remember, um, this is a Trinitarian greeting. It's a greeting from both Father Son and Spirit, but the part that we are especially looking at tonight is focusing on the description of the Son, a description of Christ Jesus. And this whole greeting is supposed to be an encouragement to the church and that's going to frame the rest of the letter as a blessing for those who are God's people, for those people who read it and hear it and keep it, as he said earlier. And the greeting gives special attention to the Son of God, uh, focusing more on the Son of God, rather than on the Father and the Spirit. And perhaps the reason for that is because this book is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apocalypse of Jesus. It's, it's the unveiling of Jesus. It's meant to reveal him and his plan and his purpose of consummating his kingdom. And so Christ and all who are united to him, may uh, that they're going to reign with him for all of eternity and live in loving communion with him. It's revealing those things. And so last week, We looked at the part of the greeting that explained who Jesus is. It described him in light of the three offices that he fills in, or that he executes in redeeming us: so prophet, priest, and king. And then tonight, the section of the greeting we have, he will consider um, what it is that Jesus does. And as I was studying it, I noticed that there is a correlation between what he, who he is as prophet, priest, and king, and also then as to what he does. Also, in realm of prophet, priest, and king, those things are highlighted here again as well. That the person of Jesus Christ is directly related to the work of Jesus Christ, and that should be obvious, I would think, as well. That that from the office comes the function. Uh, same thing is with elders and like uh, pastors today. Elder pastor, same thing. Uh, an elder or pastor is one who's supposed to preach the word of God. Well, if you have someone else come up and 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 wants to do that on a regular basis, well, then they're essentially, even though they're doing the function of an elder or pastor, even though they're not claiming to be an elder or pastor, there's confusion at that point, because the function and the office go close together. It's not to say that you can't have someone come and preach who's not an elder or a pastor. We do that here at First Family Church, obviously, as well. But generally speaking, um, there's that, that close correlation. So we shouldn't be too surprised when we see who Jesus is, and how he's described, and then that being related to what he does. So let's read the passage. We're going to try to cover all the way through verse 7 and 8 tonight as well. But let's read the passage and we'll pray and ask for God's blessing. So the reading of God's word beginning at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every knee will every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's ask him to bless our time in it as we pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy and good. and We thank you once again for the revelation that you give to us through this greeting from your throne, and we pray that you would give us understanding, Lord. We don't think that we have the ability and the power in ourselves to rightly understand your words. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds and that you would cause us to be all the more impressed with Christ, that he might be glorified. Help me to rightly handle your word and to be out of the way, God, and so that, that you might be exalted, for you are worthy of all honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so having explained who Jesus is last week, We now consider what it is that he does. And the first thing that we read of, we could easily just skim right over it. If we were just, you know, and glance right over it, if we were just reading through it, as I think we're so familiar with the notion and the idea of what it says, even if we've really never thought deeply about it. So verse five starts off, or really verse five continues, I should say. It says, to him. Him is Jesus, here still. This is building towards a doxological statement at the end of verse 6 about Jesus. And so we read, to him who loves us. Such a small phrase in the Greek. It's only actually two words in, in the Greek. But this is something so profound and something superbly great. And and the the reality is, is, if we were just to read through it, we might just, we might miss it. But this is God, the creator of all things, who loves us. This is a greeting from the God who loves us. The only God loves us. And maybe it doesn't seem like a big deal today because our culture, our evangelical culture, in some ways has understated God's love by our overemphasizing it in a wrong way. It's not uncommon today for someone to hear God loves you from the mouth of a Christian. Or you might see it on a billboard perhaps, and it'll cite maybe John 3.16 under it as the reference. And I'm not speaking at this point in of regards of God loves you as if he's saying it to in regard to Christians. Because it's beyond any shadow of a doubt that God loves those who are united to his Son. Remember in Jesus' prayer in John seventeen, even Christians are loved with the same love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that inter-Trinitarian love. When a person becomes united to Christ in faith, they share in the same love that the Father loves the Son with. And the Son loves the Father with. And we're loved by Father, Son, and Spirit with that same love. It's it's amazing. It's astounding in and of itself. Or Galatians two twenty is very clear as well. There the apostle Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in the faith, I now live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? And, and the Apostle Paul is clearly a Christian. He's applying the redemption of Christ personally to him. That he died, Christ died for him, and he loved him. Um, more on that in a moment. Or you may even think about how love is a defining characteristic of God. It is intrinsic to his nature in such a way that the Apostle John would write, God is love. He would say simply that God is love. Or as the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, it was in love that God predestined us for adoption as sons. And so it is without a doubt that God loves us, that God loves Christians, that God loves those who are united to Christ. And since God is so loving, it has become popular in our culture to use the love of God as an evangelistic tool. Because, of course, I mean, who doesn't want to be loved? And who doesn't want to be loved by God? And I think people who evangelize by saying, well, God loves you, you should trust him, therefore, I do believe they're saying such things out of sincerity. Out of a true desire to see people converted and trusting and and obeying Christ and seeking to glorify him. But think about telling, how telling a sinner who is a slave to his or her sin, God loves you, just pray this prayer and then you will be a Christian, you'll have a good life now. What does that actually do to a prideful sinner? I mean, if God, if God already loves them, then what's the point of them repenting in the first place at that point? If they're already loved by God, and they are not and they haven't repented, and they're not going to church, and they're not living a holy life, but God already loves them, well, what's the, the point then? And for the sake of time, I would I refer you to uh, Sunday's sermons recently, as we've gone through 1 Corinthians 13, and we've been talking about what the true character of love is, and then Sunday's this previous Sunday sermon, especially with Pastor that Pastor Nick just preached, where he addressed the reality that God doesn't actually love everyone and even has hatred to those who are his enemies and a rebellion to him. Remember, based off of Proverbs 6 and Psalm 5 and 11, as well as other places. But what I, I think this phrase that is used in evangelism, and often doesn't carry with it a true call of repentance, the, the problem that it has led to Is that it has dangerously made the love of God normal to so many of us here, especially here in America. How sad is that? That people may think that God loving us is a normal thing, that it might even just, you might even take it for granted, but it's not. It's extraordinary. The fact that God would love us is extraordinary. It it would be normal if there was no sin. And the second description of what Jesus does for us is going to address that, in fact. But the reality is, is because of the fall of Adam as a covenant representative for all mankind, there in the garden where he failed in the covenant of works and he ushered in guilt and sin upon all of creation, that plus the sins that we commit ourselves. Remember, right, we are, we don't sin. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. But because of these things, uh, as the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 2, we are by nature children of wrath. Not by nature children of love. We're by nature children of wrath. The idea of being loved by God is not normal. It's extraordinary. It is amazing that he would love us. Christ laid down his life for us while we were his enemies, Romans 5, 8 says. And the apostle Paul says that the fact that Christ did that for us proves to us that he loves us. The fact that God loves, the fact that Christ loves is specifically the second person of the Trinity that is in view here, that's being addressed here. Although, of course, there's one will in God, so it's totally appropriate to say, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they all love the saints. It's something that we shouldn't take for granted or think lightly of. We should think deeply about this. We should meditate upon the great love of the Lord. It should never just be a common or a normal thing to us, to those of us who have tasted it especially, because the reality that God loves us, that Christ loves us, contains in it all of the gospel blessings and encouragements. Apart from this love for his people, there would be no good news. Because remember, it was in love that he predestined us for adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. Apart from this love, we'd be stuck in our sins and we would we'd truly, we would hate God. That's what people, man's disposition is until they are saved. They are enemies of God. Romans 8, 7 says, the carnal mind is enmity with the Lord. It does not seek to please him. Indeed, it cannot. So what, why God chooses to love us in the saving way and not others, that's for him to know. It is for the praise of his glory, but certainly no one who is loved by God and no one who has truly been loved by God believes they deserve it or believes that they earned it. I mean, if, if you would consider yourself to be a recipient of God's love here in this room tonight, would you say that you did something lovely to cause God to love you? Would you say that you lived in such a way that demanded God love you? I don't think any of us, if we were to be honest, would like to admit that. We are humble recipients of God's love because of his grace towards us. We're joyful and glad recipients of it. And we always possess it once we have it. The two short words in the Greek, they are in the present active tense. What that means is it's not simply that Christ loved us as if it was an act in the past uh, that compelled him to do what he did, but Christ loves us. He continues to love us, and he won't stop ever. It's not dependent upon how we feel. It's not dependent upon what circumstances are happening in our life. Do you think that when Isaiah was being sawed in half or when the apostle Peter was crucified upside down, that God's love for them stopped at that time? It didn't. God's love isn't dependent upon circumstances that are happening in our lives. And those are extreme examples, Lord willing, hopefully examples that will never happen to any of us in this room. Is he continually loves us, it's an eternal love. It's a love that changes us, and it keeps us, and it perseveres us through our whole Christian life into eternity. Do you know that love, friends? Don't think it's just some common idea as if God loves everyone, and so it's not special. It's truly life-changing. But remember, I, I was saying earlier that I noticed a pattern in this text in which there is a correlation between who Christ is in his three offices that he executes as a redeemer and then what he does and this first one is not maybe as obvious as the other two but i think it's still uh, something that we should see here because there's an aspect of christ loving us that i think is related to that first office that he executes the office of prophet and what is it that a prophet does Of course, a prophet is one who reveals the word of God. Who does that more than Jesus? We talked about that last time. He is the image of the invisible God. He perfectly represents God uh, better than any other prophet. A false prophet is one who claims to speak for God, but doesn't actually speak for him, right? The admonishment or the foretelling would be wrong in a false prophet's case, but that's not the case with Christ Jesus, of course. He is the prophet. Uh, The great prophet, or the greater prophet, as we talked about last week, but note, the revealing of God's word and will to his people is actually an aspect of God's love towards his people. And especially that is the case when it is understood and believed and cherished as it is by his saints. Not everyone is given to know God's will. I mean, just think of that should be obvious to us. For number one, obviously, there are some people who go their whole lives without ever hearing the gospel. Think about God's activity in the world before the cross of Christ, even, in which he chose one nation that he revealed himself to through Abraham, then Moses and David. But, you know, we don't see God interacting with special revelation to, in China and North America and Eastern Europe. Those lands were in, we would say, in darkness at that time. The light of the gospel hadn't came there. But even today, there are still people who don't hear God's word. That's why we support new missionaries like Trevor out in Papua in the middle of the jungle. But not everyone is given to know what God's will is. And remember what this book is about. It's about unveiling Jesus Christ and encouraging the church in every age against the trials she will endure. And that's certainly loving of God, isn't it? That we might know that, that we might know these things, that He he's revealing these things to us, showing these things to us. Because again, not everyone knows and not everyone believes it, but we have been given the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Not everyone has it then, right? That's the Apostle Paul's point. It's been given to some, and the purpose is so that we might be able to discern spiritual things. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. That's what the revelation of Jesus Christ is about as well, the apocalypse. It's about making sense of spiritual things in a physical world even. They are connected. And so to have this message from Christ that is revealing Christ is a clear aspect of his love for us. So keep your finger here and turn back to Luke uh, chapter 8. Where we could take a look at this. We talked about this before, how it's how it's kind of ironic in a sense that for us as modern hearers of the word, in that the disciples couldn't understand the parables. They had a hard time understanding some of the parables that Jesus taught. But Here's this genre of prophetic apocalypse, and it's given to the church for the purpose of understanding. Yet how many people come to Revelation and are like, I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. It's all these fantastical things. And it's interesting because, you know, we read earlier in Revelation that it's given for us to understand. Yet these parables, which we're often more comfortable with, the disciples, the apostles, they had a hard time understanding that. The point is this, though, not everyone understands. And understanding, reading, hearing, and keeping this letter of revelation comes with the promise of blessing for one who does. But listen to Luke 8, 9 through 10. Luke 8 is a long chapter. Um, Verse 9 says, And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing, they may not understand you see there is an aspect of christ's prophetic role in redemption in what in which us hearing with ears that hear which means more than just hearing the words themselves right but what that means is to believe and understand the spiritual realities contained therein that being able to do that comes to us because christ loves us Because he is making it so that we understand. So that we hear with ears that hear. So that we see with eyes that see. Because some people, they hear with ears that don't hear. And they they see, they're blind guides. Is what he would often cite Isaiah and chide the Pharisees for that. It's his love for us that makes us to have ears that hear and eyes that see. We need him to explain it to us. It's his love toward us that makes it so. And you might be saying, well... Pastor, you're the one explaining it to us, and you're not Christ, and you'd be right about that. I am not, I am not him, not by any close, I don't know, not by any distance you can measure at all. It's, it's, it's unbelievably humongous, the, the, the gap between any pastor and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what do you think Jesus means in John 10 when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. None of us have actually heard with our ears Jesus' actual voice, I and mean, he lived 2,000 years ago. You, you don't hear the voice of Jesus in, in the sense like you're hearing my voice right now. But what did, could Jesus mean when he's saying that? What he means by that is that when you hear the word of God read or taught or right properly taught, then you believe it and you receive it with joy and gladness. I mean, how many people do you know hear preaching where they read the Bible and they come away with nothing, right? Because they don't, they're not hearing. They haven't been given ears to hear. They're not hearing Jesus' voice, even though they're all Jesus' words, right? We talked about that before, how those red-letter Bibles, I understand the point of them, but it's kind of misleading because every single word from Genesis all the way to Revelation is really Jesus' word. This is all God's word. Those red-letter Bibles, they want to highlight specifically in the gospel accounts where Jesus the son of god in his incarnate in his incarnation was speaking but really i mean all of the bible is god's holy word he preserved it for us and so when we hear christ's voice it's because and whether through the reading of god's word or the sound uh, interpretation of it it's because he loves us. He makes us understand. He reveals it to us. Again, the, the love of God is so encouraging to us, friends. It's, it's all-encompassing. That's just one way that we're, I think John is wanting us to see here. Secondly, another thing that we read in our text is he's freed us from our sins by his blood. This is, of course, a benefit we have because of Christ's work in redemption as our priest. And it implies something, doesn't it? It implies something else. Part of his love for us is that it does, in fact, rescue us. Not everyone knows this rescue, of course. The problem is that apart from God's love, which shows us that we need rescuing, is that people don't even believe they need it. People don't even understand that they need to be rescued. But as we've already seen, before Christ's love has changed us, we were by nature children of wrath. Our sin had us in captivity. Everybody who is not in Christ is, in fact, a slave to their own sin. Sin rules them. It dominates them. Even the good that they do is an allegiance to sin because it's not done in faith, Romans 14 says. But Christ Jesus suffered and died so that we could be set free. That is is why he he has done this. John 8:36 if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus went to the cross to die. Not because he deserved death at all. He wasn't in captivity to sin like like every other person that has ever existed since Adam is. He needed no one to free him of anything. Sin's chains weren't on him from birth like they are for everybody else. But Christ's substitutionary death on the cross in which his blood was shed, it made atonement for all who would ever believe in him. For the elect. The old hymn captures it perfectly. When it says, guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a savior. That's that's, that's what it should bring out of us. Thinking about what Christ has done to free us. Hallelujah, what a savior. What a savior indeed. At the end of Galatians 2.20 again, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. His blood being shed made atonement for our sins and freed us. Denny Burke breaks it down to three helpful categories. He says um, the way in which his blood frees us. Number one, in a justification sense. Okay? Justification meaning that Christ's death freed us from sin's penalty. The penalty of sin caused us to be seen of God as guilty and worthy of his wrath his wrath that even a billion years in hell wouldn't quench right that's why hell is eternal it, it's unending that's that's the seriousness of god's wrath towards sin but because of christ's love for us and dying for us we can be justified we can be and are we are declared righteous before god not because of good works that we've done but because christ satisfied the penalty due to us and then accredited to us or imputed to us his very own righteousness so we're legally adopted by then we're eternally loved by god all based on not what we've done not what we've earned because we earned wrath but what christ has merited what christ has done and so we get his life of righteousness imputed to us so that God declares us as justified. We are right with God based on what Jesus has done. He doesn't see us through our relation to Adam who transgressed the covenant in the garden, but he sees us with Christ's robes of righteousness on us in the covenant of grace. And since we have been justified based on Christ's merits, it's final and it's irreversible, right? Because it's not like Jesus's action is going to wane sometime in the future or he's going to change. Secondly, Sanctification. Uh, his, he is freeing us from sin's power. Not only is the power of sin no longer binding us with its penalty, but because we have been made a new creation, our Second Corinthians five seventeen says, which you know we read tonight and during our portion of singing as well. We also have grace given to us so that we choose to be pleasing to God with the choices in our life rather than choosing to sin. It doesn't happen all at once. For some, it happens at a faster speed than for others, this process of sanctification. But Christ is sanctifying all his saints because we have been set free from sin's chains. We are free to glorify God in obedience, as it were. We are transformed in the renewal of our minds, as Paul writes in Romans 12. This is a benefit of Christ's freeing us. The Baptist Catechism answer to question 38 puts it like this. It says, sanctification Is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. That's not possible until these chains of sin have been set free from us. Doesn't mean that you never sin. Obviously, we still sin as Christians, and we live lives that are marked by repentance. But that too is sanctification, isn't it? Before you were a Christian, if you can think about that, how often did you sin and you didn't repent? That was that's that's every sinner's life. Unless you get caught for doing something, then you you repent because you got caught and you don't like the penalty of being caught. But you never repented because oh, I offended God. Only that happens when you have been born again and and those chains of sin have been uh, removed from you it's only possible when christ has set us free and by the way john is going to acknowledge later in revelation that believers that some of us will be made captives uh, by god's enemies and some of us will even die for the faith and he's talking about that about his original hearers and people all throughout the church age as well but whether you are in jail in a jail cell Or even in death, uh, you're more free than the person who would persecute you because of what Christ has done. And then thirdly, glorification. Christ will free us from sin's presence eventually. Because we've been justified, we will be glorified. Silas, you okay there, bud? Maybe stop, okay? Okay. That's part of the point, mind you, uh, with what Paul makes in Romans 8 with the golden chain. Uh, Because God is so great, because Christ is stronger than anything in the world, and because we are justified, we are in his hand, in other words then. And none can take us out of his hand, as he says in John chapter 6. Everyone who is justified will be glorified. Because when we are set free by the love of Christ through the shedding of his blood, it's not as if we are then free and unaccounted for. We're not just free and then wandering off into the world, doing our own thing, and who knows what's going to happen to us. We are free, but we're free in Christ. The good work that he began in us, when the Holy Spirit applied Christ's work of redemption to us, which justified us, Christ will bring that work to completion in us and and glorify us. When he consummates his kingdom, when he comes again, we'll get a new body, and a body that is not plagued by the curse of sin. And we don't even know what that's going to be like exactly because it's, it's in a way uncomprehensible to us now because everything we think of is impacted and infected by sin. But the Apostle Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians is enough for us. He says, we shall be like him in that day. We shall be like Jesus sin's presence will eventually totally be gone from us praise the lord it's good so good we can't properly understand it now in our condition and comprehend it fully but it is very good that much we know for certain and then thirdly this greeting from the throne room tells us he makes us a kingdom of priests to god forever and he ends with this doxology to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen so not only does christ in his work of redemption Execute the office of king in which he defends us and he protects us. But because he is such and he loves us so completely, we are made a kingdom of priests to God as well. Joel Beakey says this He says, Christ has given us the highest and noblest work, that of serving God as our Father in heaven. It's our highest and noblest work, Beeky says. Do you see that, friends? Do you agree that that is the height of human existence? I know our flesh says otherwise. In our flesh, we want to live for ourselves. We want to gratify the desires of our flesh. But it's never going to fulfill anyone. As the Westminster Catechism says, our chief end, our purpose as people, in other words, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we realize that most clearly and completely as John writes here when he says that he makes us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. If you think back to earlier, part of the problem of today's notion of of God loves you as an evangelism tool is that it undersells God's plan for his people. If he just loves all people indiscriminately the same way. You see, the end game of God redeeming a person is not simply to remove the elements of unhappiness in a person's life, although he might do that. In some cases, he's pleased to do that in his grace. Jesus loves you and you'll have a good life isn't the main goal, although again, for some people, especially in today's modern world, that is the case for for some Christians. They get that. But the ultimate aim of God's love is more than just simply the forgiveness of our sin. The forgiveness of our sin is a central and important step in it, a necessary step. But it's not the end. What the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are doing in redeeming us is creating a people, creating a kingdom of people who love and joy and worship and praise God. And they'll be able to do that for all of eternity. A people who will do this forever and never tire of it, never be labored by it. Israel was a type of this in the Old Covenant, but they were never actually meant to be it. I mean, you know, sometimes it might feel like a burden to come to church, right? Like, oh, I really have all these other things to do. <laughs> I have, my, this thing is calling for my attention. I need to finish my homework. I have this this assignment at work I need to do. All my friends are going out, they're doing this. But in the eternal age, when we are totally encumbered by any weight of sin in us, there's going to be none of that. It's not going to be any sort of a labor at all. It's our it's perfect joy to do this. So again, Israel in the Old Covenant was a type of this, but they can never actually be it. They couldn't be this because not everyone was saved in that community. And for it to be fully realized, everyone needs to be freed by the blood of Christ. And we know not everyone in Israel was that. But again, they typified it. The covenant they were in pointed to it. And so Peter, uh, in 1 Peter two nine, along with John here, says that this idea of God's people being a kingdom of priests is realized now in the new covenant that we are a royal priesthood in the church of Jesus Christ in which we reign with Christ and worship Yahweh. Christ is reigning now. He is reigning over the kings of the world as verse 5 said, even over those who reject and neglect him as king. He's over the redemptive kingdom, those people who are saved and which, which is the kingdom that will be consummated when Christ comes again at the end of well his perfect time whenever that is going to be we don't know exactly and will live with peace in peace with god uh, for all of eternity when he consummates his kingdom he's also over the what we would call the common kingdom which is his kingdom of preservation which is made up of people who rebel against him still and some of them will one day hear his voice and convert to christianity and the rest will be you know judged on the day when christ consummates his kingdom but christ's love takes that promise typified in Exodus 19 to Israel, which read, this is Exodus 19.6, it says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And he makes it accomplished here in the new covenant in the, the church. Notice the typology of the promise in, in Exodus 19. It's you shall be a kingdom of priests to me. But notice how it's different in John, from that. how John says in Revelation 1. It's He's made us a kingdom of priests. It's no longer, you shall be this. It's now in the, in the antitype, in the church. It's he's made us a kingdom of priests. And we are now reigning with Christ even. God has dominion of all things. He's in control of all. He asserts that in Exodus 19, 5, saying all that the earth is mine. And now because of Christ Jesus, who he is and what he's done, we enter into that dominion as royal priesthood to give him the glory. G.K. Beale notes, believers have already entered into this role as priests and kings, even though the manner of their performance is still incomplete. So even though we reign with him now, even though if you're a Christian here tonight, you are reigning with Jesus now, it's not as good as it one day will be. It will be better when Jesus consummates the kingdom. And there is only at that point, one kingdom in As it were, because the kingdom of preservation and redemption will be one and the same. And he'll have glory and dominion forever, and we'll be reigning with him in that context. God will preserve his people for all of eternity, forever and ever, in our glorification. And he ends it with this doxology, with a simple word, with the word, amen. Do you know what that means? The word, amen, is it just a word that we say? So, yeah, it's not just a word that we say to, to end our prayer so everybody knows our prayer is over, right? It means it is so, or it is true, or yeah, I agree, or let it be. And when we say, when we pray, and at the end, when we say amen, and when you say it at the end of someone else's prayer, what you're really saying is like, yeah, I, I agree with the content of what that prayer was. I agree with those things that were said. And so, what I think John is doing for us here, what he wants us to consider, is do we say amen to these things that he's already said? Beginning back from grace and peace. That beginning at verse 4, or in verse 4, all the way to all these things about Jesus Christ. Do we say amen? Do we say, I agree? Do we say that this is good, this is true? He, he's given us an opportunity at that point to, to question ourselves. Do we gladly receive grace and peace from the throne of God? Can we say amen to that? It's there for us to consider and ponder. And then comes the close to this greeting. And we'll move fast through this and close ourselves because these are themes that will be touched on in greater detail uh, later in the letter. We have the first, we have first uh, verse 7. And in this verse, there's imagery being borrowed from Daniel 7 and from Zechariah 12. So verse 7 reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so. So in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel prophesies about the Son of Man who comes in the clouds. And it's, just, it's descriptive of his coming in judgment for those aren't, who aren't a part of his redemptive kingdom and salvation for those who are a part of it. It's an elaboration upon what Zechariah says about people who were who seeing the Christ whom they pierced. And so that's an allusion to those people who were present at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, but then he expands it here in, in Revelation to the whole world, saying all the nations will see him and wail. There will be sorrow associated with it. The tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, on account of the Son of Man who comes in the clouds. And this coming, J.K. Beale notes, I think he does a good job here, he notes that this coming isn't just a one-time thing. I think that's, that's our initial when we hear coming, we think, oh, he's talking about the second coming, he's coming again, future. Which so in our sense since it's already happened in the past, it's that one time thing in the future. Well, that was kind of the mistake of the Jews, actually. They expected him to consummate the kingdom when he first came. And he certainly, though, he came in judgment in that first coming. He came in judgment against sin and he announced that the kingdom was at hand, and then at Christ's resurrection, where sin was defeated, Christ began reigning and he is coming as it is often said in the New Testament, and that is in reference to his coming or his being in a state of coming, in judgment for those who hate him and also in salvation for the church throughout the age until the second of coming or the the final coming, in other words, in which he consummates his kingdom. And so in a sense, this idea of that he's saying here in Revelation 1, seven that he is coming. It speaks to a continual coming, that Christ came already as an infant. He was born into this world from a virgin. He lived, and then he went to the cross to die for sin. He was buried for three days. He was resurrected, and then he was seen by disciples, and he ascended to heaven. That was He started coming then. He's continually coming throughout this church age with salvation and judgment, depending on who you are. And he's going to finally come again at the end of the age. And he's going to consummate his kingdom at that point. Some people will mourn over their sin. And some people will mourn over the judgment that comes upon them. For some, Christ's continual coming is the blessed hope. And that in that. Final coming, which Titus two thirteen talks about, in which there is the appearing of Jesus the Savior. For some it's the day of judgment, in which they'll rather have mountains fall upon them, as Jesus writes about or tells us about in Luke twenty-three. And even so, amen, as John puts it there at the end of verse seven, whether whichever way it happens, you know, to God be the glory. And then finally verse eighteen our verse eight and one eight. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's a title that refers to the Lord. It's a way of saying that God is all knowing and sovereign and, and all powerful, that He is Almighty. Typically, in the New Testament, when you read the New Testament, when you see the word Lord, it's referring to Jesus. Typically that's the case. But in Revelation, as you're gonna see, it's often actually referred to, it's often actually referring to the Father and not the Son in most cases. But this part, it's hard to say if it's in reference to Christ or the Father. But we do know in Revelation 22, that this title, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is clearly given to Christ Jesus. The context here, though, closing off this greeting about Christ, makes me think that this verse, this close to the greeting, here is an affirmation about Jesus Christ, really. So it's the greeting from the throne of God, emphasizing that we can have joy and peace because these things about our Savior Jesus Christ are certain because he is God. It's taking statements that can only be true for an uncreated being and that it can only be true of divinity. And it's saying that Christ Jesus, the God-man, in other words, that is truly God. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the one who is, and who was, and who is to come. That same statement that was mentioned in verse 4, that was clearly about God the Father. But now it's attributed to Christ. And the reason for that is so that we will have joy and peace. It's an affirmation of Jesus' deity. And it's setting it up. It's making it clear here, right at the beginning of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, that Jesus isn't just simply some good teacher. He's not just simply some good example that we should follow. Some moral example. He is the incarnated God. He is the eternal God who took on flesh to save sinners and make them a royal priesthood all because of his love. And we could be certain about his victory then. Because he is God. This is a God who is victorious. This is a God you can trust. This is a God who will do all that he has promised. And he is speaking to us from heaven through an angel to John and then to us and to the church in every age may he be glorified let's pray holy god you are awesome and mighty and we thank you for this greeting once again and all that it teaches us and we pray that you would help us to take these things to heart that we would think about you rightly help us to have no low thoughts of you at all god especially as we consider these great and high things of you loving us of you shedding your blood so that we can be freed from the power of sin, of you reigning and making then us royal, a royal priesthood as well. May you help us, Lord, to see you rightly as you have revealed yourself and to know that your coming has is, is good news to us uh, because you have loved us so completely, Lord. And help us then to know that it is judgment for those who are not uh, loved by you and who are not confessing Christ as Lord. So let us live in such a way that we would be bold to tell people of their need for forgiveness in Christ and how willing it is that Christ is to forgive all who come to him with repentant hearts. So may you be glorified in us and all for for Christ's sake, we pray these things. In in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, any questions, comments, anything could be clear? I know we went kind of fast toward those seven and eight, and there's some important concepts there, but we're going to hit those in more detail as we go through the rest of the book. Yeah, I think. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys.